Hey everyone, my name is Brian. I and my friend and 10-year NBA veteran Mason Plumley are founding AGC. We're a startup that's passionately pursuing the creation of a more generous future. Welcome again to a generous podcast. The goal of this is to inspire, educate, and empower people to actually make the world a better place. Today's guest is special. It is Ben Higgins. Ben is typically introduced as being The Bachelor. Uh, he was also on The Bachelorette. Uh, I actually remember watching his seasons with my wife a few years ago because we were rooting on a fellow Denverite. But what I believe this interview reflects is that Ben is so much more than somebody who's had a presence on reality TV. Uh, he's given himself to the building of Generous Coffee Company and genuinely cares about making the world a better place. Wanted to say this on the front end, uh, we wanted to support what Ben is doing, and so here's what we're gonna do. We need reviews when you leave a review for us. It helps expand our reach as we strive to create a more generous future. And so we would love it if you gave us a review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to this. And for the first 10 people that leave a review, just shoot me an email. By the way, leaving a review takes like 10 seconds. Shoot me an email at Brian. I'm Brian with a Y, so B-R-Y-A-N at helloagc.com. Tell me you left a review, and I'm going to send you a bag of coffee from Generous Coffee Company, and we hope it gives you a better glimpse into the beauty of what they're building. Ben's going to tell you about this himself. Here he is. All right, Ben, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Hey, I'm pumped to be here. I, I wanted to ask this on the front end. I, yeah. You know, we talked about this a little bit before, but uh, my co-founder Mason Plumley and you both grew up in Warsaw, Indiana. Yeah. What What is it about Warsaw, Indiana, that just keeps putting out these like highly influential, world changing people? It's that's well, that's nice. Uh, I put Mason into that category and his two brothers, who are all seven foot tall. Right. That's always unique. You don't want to stand behind them at church. That yeah. was always. <laughs> That was always, in, you know, the interesting thing is don't stand behind the Plumleys. You know, Warsaw is unique. It is, I, you know, I think it's a really great place to grow up. A lot of really caring people. I feel like you get a good grasp of, typically, you get a good grasp of what, like, a family can look like and, and how a family can function. And, I, I mean, I bet Mason would say the same thing. I just felt like there was a lot of support in that town, especially for me, you know, for me now. Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird town. Uh, my friends always say is like, how many, how, how does so many people that are doing so much come out of this like 12,000 person town? I have no idea other than the fact that I'm glad, it, I'm glad I grew up there. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any Plumley brother, uh, stories from, from growing up there? Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, Mason, so Mason, and I swim on the same swim team growing up. Really? So, wow. you know, Mason, Mason and Mason was a little bit of a quicker grower than miles. Miles was like, probably six, five as a sophomore in high school, which is still tall, but it's not seven foot. Right. Mm -hmm. And his body was kind of stretched out and, you know, a little like gangly. And so basketball wasn't really Miles's thing for a long time. Miles actually, he's, I can give a fact about it. I have all of them. I bet Miles, uh, he might still be, he was a unicycler, really actually incredible at it. And I just remember miles driving around in a unicycle, which is weird <laughs> to think now. Right. Right. Um, Marshall, the little brother, had like a little heart issue growing up. And so what I remember about us, we swam the same swim team, all of us. Marshall would have these like little heart flutters, but his parents would have to pick him up and shake him by his feet to get his heart back in rhythm. So I remember them like <laughs> lifting Marshall as a little kid out of the pool. 
and shaking his feet around to get his heart back flowing right. And then Mason, Mason was um, the person I was the closest with because he was closest to me in age. You played in the same AAU basketball team for two years, stayed on the same swim team. Mm-hmm. And then Mason went on to be really good at basketball, and I went on to retire. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, did did Duke recruit the two of you together? Like, was Coach K to see, you know, was it one of those stories where, like, Coach K was there to see you, and then he discovered Mason? Like, what? I was was playing basketball uh, with Mason, and, I mean, Mason was playing at a high level. Obviously, he's playing at a high level. He was playing in the NBA. But even as, a, like, a youngster, you know, he's smaller, but he's so he's a point guard, and then he that's why his handles are pretty good today. And mm-hmm. I uh, tore my ACL three times, and so my career ended. My career ended tragically, and also very different than his. So yeah, I was done early. And you got married like a little over a year ago, right? It was like November. Yeah, so a year about a year and a half ago now. Okay. Um, yeah, a year and five months. I need to get that right. What, how's how's like um, you know a year and five months of of marriage been? I got really lucky, you know, because of my past. I was kind of known as uh, I was best known for being single, and I really started to live into that identity. Just you know, I get my gigs, my my lot of jobs off of being single, or um, still having the show call you every once in a while, being like, hey, do you want to come back? And that kind of felt good for a while, right? Uh, and so I was worried about marriage. I was worried about committing to some, one person uh, and what that would look like for me. I knew my, you know, Jessica was, like, I'm, I'm very lucky to be married to her. I knew that. And I knew I wanted to marry her. Uh, but I was concerned. And everybody kept telling me the first year of marriage is the hardest year of marriage. Hmm. And, you know, Jessica and I did things, it might, I mean, probably untraditionally today. Uh, you know, we didn't live together. We were abstinent before marriage. Uh, so, like... That was a unique, I mean, it was a change for me personally. Mm. Uh, once I met her to make that decision, and then it was uh, it was a little bit weird. Like, we didn't know how well we knew each other. Mm. I'll tell you this, the first year of marriage has been amazing. It's mm. been a ton of fun. She's an incredible partner, uh, mm. just an incredible, like, support system friend. She cares about, like, where our relationship's at and how I'm doing. Overall, it's been awesome. I, mm. I love it. I, I don't. I, I don't remember my life before it now. I listened to this morning. I listened to y'all's podcast together. I think it was the week before you got married. I don't know if you remember recording that, but what's been most surprising uh, to you in you know the last year and five months of of what married life has looked like? How much she sheds um, <laughs> is one. It's wild. Is it hair st- uh, strung up a- across the shower? Is shower that- stuck to the shower wall. I yeah. didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, I had exactly. no clue yeah. that was a thing until I walk into like a ferret on the side of my. <laughs> That's wall. right. Yeah, exactly. I would say, like, a, for personally, I, I didn't realize how driven she was. Like, I mm. knew, like, because we weren't like, she was in Nashville for most of our dating relationship. I never got to see like the day to day. She just is driven. Like she wakes up at five o'clock in the morning and works out so that she can then um, do her quiet time in the morning before mm-hmm. she goes to work. And then when she comes home from work, you know, she still does this like stretching routine for her body to get, get her back even again. And like that is not me. Like if mm-hmm. you I mean, if this house is, is blessed by God because of my wife, not because <laughs> of She's just and she works hard and she cares a lot and she really cares about our relationship a lot. Like she Mm -hmm. brings that same intensity into like trying to make our relationship the best possible relationship we can. I've learned that about her and it's been really cool. It's it's I think a lot of that's why it's made things so easy. Mm. It was interesting. Here was my biggest takeaway from that interview that I that I listened to. 
was I think it was on y'all's first date. She gave you uh, like a bottle of bourbon. It was Chicken Cock Special Reserve. This is the bottle. Wow. You said that was one of your three favorite bourbons in that interview. Do you, what, do you have, like, what are the other mm-hmm. two? I, I had to know. Well, so, yeah. So, first off, uh, if anybody's listening who is single, and generosity is the topic of discussion. If you are meeting somebody and you know they like bourbon, bringing them a bottle of really great bourbon is a really great first start. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can't find that chicken cock anymore, though. It's gone. Um, can't can't find it. So it's one of the, my three favorite bourbons I've ever had, but I can't have it again because I can't find it. Wow. Um, Big Blanton's fan. You know, again, not as easy to find as it used to be, but a Big Blanton's fan. I, I have to give you four. If I if my everyday, like, if I'm just, like, having friends over, in a, like, Buffalo Trace, I'm just a Buffalo Trace distillery person. And then my father-in-law and I, got lucky enough to buy a barrel of Weller foolproof from wow. the Weller distillery. And so we did yeah. that. And so that's up there because that's a bottle, that's a barrel that like nobody else will ever have. And it's, yeah. it has our sticker on it. So those, those are like top. Now I know that all those are like fancier, but like the fancier, the bourbon, the better the bourbon. Yeah. yeah. Were you 26 when you were on the bachelor? It's 20, 26. Yeah. 26 years old when I was on the bachelor. What I was most curious about was just like, what is the experience you come off that, you're 26, you're trying to figure out what to do with the rest of your life. There's probably not, you know, there's like a dozen other people in the world you can talk to about that. How did, how did you process, like, what am I going to do next? It's a great question. It wasn't easy, and it didn't come right away. And so fame hits me like 100 miles an hour out of nowhere for no really great reason. You know, I don't have a lot to be proud of from just like getting famous because you went on a dating show. Now, it's cool. And like, I don't, I'm not mad at, you know, I, I, I'm really happy. It's probably one of the best things ever happened to me Mm because it's allowed me now to be where I'm at, but it's really weird to sit in that place of all of a sudden people care about what you're doing and they only care about what you're doing because they've watched you date. And so fame became very euphoric. I didn't have a lot of friendships in Denver, close friendships at the time. A lot of my friends existed back in Indiana still. Now I do, a lot of them did move out here to Denver over the last few years, but I remember this specific event. I met Samuel L. Jackson at a red carpet event. Hmm. And I called my family, my parents, I'm an only child. And I was like, guys, I just met Samuel L. Jackson. And I was having drinks with him and we were laughing and we were hanging out. And they said, that's cool. I was like, well, yeah, but like my expectation was like all of a sudden, my I don't know, my parents were going to be like, you are golden. You are the mm. best person ever. And they didn't. They were just like, that's cool. That's mm. so fun that you get to do that stuff. And it hit me and my expectations lowered. So I called my friends and I started telling them about it. And all of them had a very similar reaction. In fact, some of them didn't even like have a question or a response to me saying it. They're like, that's cool that you get to do that stuff. Mm. And I hung up the phone. I had one friend left. I, I have a, I kind of, uh, one of my life lessons is I try to keep four friends in my inner circle mm-hmm. um, so that they can hold me accountable to good things and bad things. So celebrate with me when things need to be celebrate and tell me, hey, you're doing great. And also pressure me a little bit when maybe I'm not, I'm, I'm acting a fool and mm-hmm. I need some accountability. And so I called my last friend in that circle and I said, man, I'm struggling. I just called so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and and told them about this event. And now I just feel like nobody cares. Mm. And now I'm starting to feel really lonely Mm. in this. Like, I feel like I'm doing this whole thing alone and that like, I, I'm creating all these cool stories that nobody will ever be able to talk about with me. Mm. Like they'll just come and go and I'll have them like held in my mind. And maybe I can sit my grandkids in the corner one day and talk about them if I can remember them. But like, that's it. Mm. 
And he asked me a question then. He goes, Ben, what do you think about this? He goes, what if this whole experience is never meant to be about you? Hmm. What if it was always meant to be about something bigger than you? What if Hmm. the pressure you feel to stay famous and to stay relevant and to stay in the headlines is a pressure you shouldn't hold? And if you made it about something bigger than you, you don't have to hold that pressure anymore. Hmm. And that shook me because he was right. And so from that moment, I trusted that, that, that wisdom. And so from that moment forward, I started to just think about, hey, what do I like to do? What have I always liked to do? What does it mean now to have a following and a platform? Mm-hmm. And what could I be doing with this to like enhance my life before the show and move this into something that I could be working on for the rest of my life? And so that's where the wheels started turning, really from that one conversation in the L.A. airport. So from there with Generous Coffee, where on your timeline then did Generous become something that you were going to give yourself to? Yeah. So a little backstory of Generous first would be in uh, when I was 15 years old, I went to Central America for the first time, saw extreme poverty. It wrecked me, messed my whole whole worldview up because, you know, we talked about Warsaw, Indiana. Warsaw, Indiana is an incredible place. It's also a very wealthy place. It, there's a lot of jobs available in Warsaw, Indiana. Um, it's it's utopian. Orthopedic capital of the world. So you have five major headquarters in a town of 13,000. So you can wow. imagine what that looks like, right? So when I saw extreme poverty, it wrecked my, my view of the world. And it also really started to, I mean, a, a good tagline, you know, a good name today for it would be deconstruct what I was believing and seeing and experiencing and how I was understanding God, right? God wasn't just all about like flowering you with wealth and blessings. Mm-hmm. Like there's some like grittiness to that as well, you mm-hmm. know? So I started to deconstruct my faith. Uh, tradition, and then came back home. My buddies and I, my buddy, really founded the nonprofit called Humane and Hope United, which is a nonprofit that focuses on building up communities that are impoverished and giving them opportunities. Uh, not giving them, actually partnering with them on these opportunities, like building up entrepreneurs, helping start small businesses that they can take over, helping start medical clinics that they can be trained to, to run. And so uh, this nonprofit was thriving, but it was also a bunch of twenty-year-olds that were running it. And our fundraising base wasn't getting much bigger. And so after the show, I was still working at my software job. I was a software salesman. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was doing that on Monday through Thursday. And then on Thursday night, I would fly to L.A. and do whatever fancy event I wanted to do or needed to do and come back on Monday and sit in a cubicle. And it started to feel very weird. started Mm -hmm. to feel like I lived two two very different lives. And that wasn't healthy in its own right. And so I said, I want to, I want to do something with this. And my buddy and I went on a kind of a, a boys trip to Honduras and traveled the country to just dream about what we could figure out for me to do. And one of the ideas we said was, what if we started a company selling coffee, donated a hundred percent of our profits to nonprofits and social causes. So to become a fundraising engine for these organizations to do the great work on the ground. Mm-hmm. So that's what we came back and started to do. We started to figure out how to, you know, get our niche market in the coffee world. We started to figure out what the financials would look like and what that means to be able to donate 100% of your profits. It also meant that I had to find another job because I'm not getting paid from Generous. Mm. And I never planned to. I never planned to. And so iHeartRadio randomly called me three days after we really put our stake in the ground and said Generous is going to start. And they said, hey, we want to sign you to a six-year contract to do this Mm. podcast and it's going to take up a couple hours a week, but we really want you as our host. 
And I said yes. And so now I get to host the show. That's the one with uh, Ashley I. Is that right? Yeah, it's called Almost Famous. It's a pop yeah. culture podcast. I have the easiest job in the world. I know nothing about pop culture. She knows everything. So I just have to keep <laughs> us on time. That's great. It's great. I watched a lot of you talking about Generous Coffee. And my experience of watching it was that you genuinely care. Like it, it, it seems like you're genuinely passionate about it. And this isn't you know, some sort of like small side hustle puff piece to like boost an image. It seems like you like really, really care. Where do you feel like that passion comes from? Because I feel like it's pretty unique. Yeah. Well, I do care. Um, there's only like three of us that work on the internal team. And so, and we're, we're growing fairly quickly. And, and so it was myself, it's another buddy of mine who kind of has a similar story to me, kind of sold his business, was done with it and said, Hey, I want, I'm 40 years old. I got to figure out something to do with the rest of my life. Mm. Um, and then we do have one paid employee right now. She has to be paid because she works her butt off, you know, but we all spend, uh, you know, 40, 50, whatever it requires. It's a full-time job for me. It's a full-time job because I believe that this can be something incredible. I believe for-profit business can be used for good. You know, we call it for purpose. And, right. Uh, I believe that the future of this is very bright if we just mm. continue to take the right next steps and, and grind with it a little bit to make something happen. You know, to, to answer the second part of that question, why I'm passionate about it. Well, you know, one is I, I think my heart was broken by God as a 15 year old to realize mm. there's injustice in this world, like mm. to realize that not everybody gets to sit in an office in their house in air conditioning and have a home for my car, which is my garage. Yeah. That's nicer than, you know, 97% of the homes that exist in this world. You know, I don't feel guilt over that, but I do feel a responsibility to do something about it if I have the opportunity. Mm. So I believe it is a calling, not to get too Christianese here, I do believe it's a calling from God to love mm. my neighbor, to look for the outsider, to care um, for the people who are hurting to, uh, give people a voice who maybe don't have a voice. If mm. I have the opportunity and the ability to give them a voice, I just believe it's a calling and it's, it's really the only thing in my life that's, that's made sense to me. And it's allowed me to get excited mm. to sit down and have a conversation or sit down and try to hustle coffee to whoever else is willing to buy it because I believe in what it's doing. Yeah. And I, I mean, at this stage in my life, what has only worked for me, what's given me the best life experiences, what's given me the most joy is being involved in human story hmm. at an, at an intimate level. And this allows me to do it every day. Yeah. I really just believe it's, it's like my unique calling from God with, and it's, it's really only possible that I can work for free because things lined up for that. Like yeah. I don't not make money in my life. Like I'm not right, like, right that charitable where I'm just like not doing anything else. Right. But everything else is lined up for me to make this my full-time job. And, Mm -hmm. and, and as a result, I I believe that I have, it's a, it's a responsibility I hold to, you know, do it well. Yeah. I was really impressed even just from the grit, you know, going through COVID. And I think you had shared that you guys were on the verge of bankruptcy as well. I mean, that, that probably would have been a very, you know, if this has been sort of like a, again, sort of a side hobby. Yeah. um, I'm just trying to make myself feel better. I'm sure you could have said, you know, no to this and, you know, yes to a thousand other opportunities that would have been easier. But, you know, the genuine grit, I think, is a reflection of like the conviction behind it. Oh, definitely. I mean, we have multiple stories where all of a sudden our bank account is looking like, well, this is it. <laughs> but we can't, you know, we couldn't give up 
opportunities existed where we didn't have to give up. But there's, you know, this has not been easy. I think I don't think starting any business is easy. I think when, especially when you start a business and you say at the end of each quarter we're going to donate a hundred percent of our profits. Now, just to be clear, that's usually ten to fifteen percent of revenue. Sure. So there there are operational costs that we have to pay for. Right. There are employees that we have to pay for. There is healthcare and those things. So ten for ten to fifteen percent of revenue. But at the end of the at the end of the quarter, we pretty much are not starting over, but we're starting with a lot less than most mm-hmm. companies do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been hard. And it's been confusing. There's been a lot of moments of like the dark night of maybe not my soul, but my mind being like, mm-hmm. where, why in the world am I putting so much time and effort into something that's just costing money and it doesn't feel to be working? Mm-hmm. But those are, I'm learning as I get older, those are good questions to ask myself. It puts me in a place of, with like a humility and ability to learn. I mean, maybe yeah. if we took off and we were a $100 million company within the first year, I probably wouldn't have the humility. Mm towards this business that I do, but Mm. it's taken some grit and some sweat and some tears and some frustrations Mm. to even still be alive today when it comes Mm. to generous. And that's taught me a lot. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I would assume it's probably a step toward animidity. Yeah. I I would assume that people love for you to talk about the bachelor or all sorts of other stuff, but this is not that. No. Is that a point of tension or... No, it was massive it, up until even of Jan- uh, July of 2021. Mm-hmm. It was. I've had like um, the hit rock bottom moments a few times in my life. I live in that space kind of like I'm, I'm always kind of like questioning, like, why are things going good for me right now? Like they, they got to turn fast. I'm always kind of living in that world. Like you're waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah. Like like what am I missing? Mm-hmm. Like what? And, and then when it's bad, typically in my life, I've tried to get out of that as fast as possible. And in July of 2021, I think I got turned down for a hosting gig that I thought I was going to get. Hmm. And I think the reason I got turned down was just maybe because I wasn't as uh, relevant as I used to be. Hmm. And then I got that same day, like a phone call about generous that wasn't very encouraging. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I remember I just all set up my and I wept and I was like, hmm. nothing that I'm doing is bringing me anything. Like everything I'm doing is failing. Everything I thought was would work is not working. What I thought my next five years were going to look like is not what my next five years are going to look like. I'm about to get married and I don't even know if I'm going to have a job. And so, yes, it's been a it's it was what happened in July. I let I let myself live in that space for a bit and listen to what like I was telling myself and starting to work through some of the lies I was telling myself and start to try to just take a deep breath and look at the bigger picture of where my life was sitting and what was going on in my world and try to find some gratitude, try to find some peace in that, try to find some joy and contentment in where I was going and also try to divorce myself from the idea that I could be famous forever mm. or I'd be relevant forever. Mm. And it was not easy, but you know, I, I don't know if I'm out of that, right. Envy sure. and jealousy still can spark up and I'm like, why sure. am I not the one doing that stuff? But I'm, it's a lot healthier. It doesn't paralyze me like it used to. So, yes, it's been hard. Uh, mm-hmm. It is hard. It's a hard struggle through loneliness and questioning and despair. And But, you know, where I, where I feel like I sit today is I tell my friends when they ask me how I'm doing, I do believe this. I just don't say I say I'm happily content. Like I'm still living in this space of just being really happily content. I still would love to get a phone call and say, I would love to pay you a million dollars to host this show next week. That would be mm-hmm. awesome. So if anybody's listening, I'm still available. <laughs> But that doesn't happen anymore. And mm-hmm. I have to become okay with that and see who, you know, see what, see who I am outside of that. Mm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I was, uh, as you were talking, I was reflecting on a conversation of somebody who was counseling me uh, a couple of weeks ago. He talked about we go through this cycle of like, we dream, then we do, and then it becomes dull, and then we go into the darkness. And he says, the reality is, he's like, in the darkness, we, we have an intolerance for the darkness. That's kind of like what you're referring to is that, into- you know, it's like, I just want to resolve this as quickly as possible. And instinctually, we run back to what's familiar that throws us back into the darkness and we just get stuck in this cycle. But he's like, if you can learn how to sit in the darkness and not avoid it or run away from it, but go through it, you learn to dream again. Mm. I've thought about that about 10,000 times since two weeks ago. I wish somebody would have told me that then. (laughs) Well, you did it. It sounds like you're doing it. I mean, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a completed process, but the tolerance of of sitting in that and. You know, because I'm sure there was a million other kind of vehicles you could have used to cope to, mm-hmm. you know, relieve that tension. But you're not where you are now. Yeah. I had to, like, lean into it a little bit, right? I had to I had to start listening to some of those crazy, heavy things I would tell myself about myself and ask myself if those are true or not. And it's not like they just go away when you're like, no, those aren't true. Like, stop right. thinking that. Like, no, they still exist. Yeah. But you have to start, like, reforming who you are and what you're about, what you believe in. You have to start remembering some of the, the, the ways, you know, for me, I understand not everybody would call themselves a Christian, but that's, you know, that is my God. And so for me, I had to remember that like the God I believe in has Mm -hmm. shown up and how often, and that's not always easy. Like I, you know, I forgot a lot of the stuff or I misplaced or blamed the other stuff on just like happenstance. And that could be true at times also, but I had to start getting healthy again and I had to mm-hmm. lean into my pain, I believe, in order to do that. Yeah. I know you, th- that was around the time you wrote your book as well, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Was that, yeah. was that, did you, do you feel like now, because that was a couple of years ago? A book on loneliness. So I wrote a book on loneliness and reconnecting with yourself, with others, with romance and with God. Called Alone in Plain Sight, right? Yeah, it's called yeah. Alone in Plain Sight. And it mm-hmm. came out in the time of COVID, which you would think would be perfect timing, right? Yeah. However, it's some of my story along with a lot of other people's stories who have impacted me in my life and then some lessons all of us have learned along the way and insights that, you know, maybe help us. And you'd think it'd be great to come out during COVID because it's very timely. Right. But then it cancels book tours and it cancels all the ways that you do connect with people. And so, you know, it was weird. I wrote this book, put it out into the world and then never had like any tangible feeling about it because I never got, you know, the feedback I would get would be virtually, which was awesome still, but it wasn't yeah. like people coming to me face to face. So, yeah. um, yeah, it was the same period of time. It was more towards the end of the promotion process. Mm-hmm. But I think writing that book put me in a lot of these places too. I was reliving mm-hmm. a lot of like struggles with addiction, struggles with romance or in relationships and objectifying people and, using them as, as pleasure and not realizing they're people. And, and that got, got kind of heavy when you're starting to mm-hmm. think about it. And you kind of just, you think about these stories of when you're at your worst all the time, mm-hmm. you're writing them down on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of started to feel like, yeah, you might suck. Uh, you aren't <laughs> that great. Which is probably maybe something I needed to hear at the time because I thought it was mm-hmm. pretty great. Was it now that you're two years removed from that, was that like a pretty healing experience mm-hmm. writing that? Yeah, very healing, very healing. Healing in the sense of I'm not healed. I still struggle with a lot of these things and there's still insecurities and issues in my life. But I remember what it's like to be in in the darkest, what I felt like is the darkest place or a dark place. And I remember that there's light on the other side. 
Mm-hmm. And so even if I have to go through something like that again, I, I would hope that I would believe mm-hmm. there is light on the other side and I, I have to do a little work to get there mm-hmm. and a little, I have to dig in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one is I just developed some tools with counseling and with friendships and just with myself to help keep myself healthy. When I start to tell myself things about myself I don't believe are true, I have to remember who I am and write down who I am and who I was yesterday and maybe the day before that. You know, so yes, I I believe I'm still healing. I think I always will live in this a little bit, but it doesn't paralyze me. It makes me think, I don't know if you've ever read any Henry Nouwen, but uh, Nouwen had this term of in the journey of healing, you become a wounded healer. (laughs) So it's Mm. the woundedness doesn't completely go away, but you're able to experience some element of redemption and being a source of healing for the other people in the midst of your woundedness. And it seems like a lot of what you've, you've been stepping into. I haven't read any of him. I'm surprised I even haven't heard of him. And that's mm-hmm. weird. Um, I do read quite a bit. I would say too, and, and it's to your point, one of the coolest things that's happened from this that I didn't realize is just a natural level of empathy that mm-hmm. is kind of created through these seasons Mm. where I just feel a lot more equipped to sit with people and their pain now mm. than I did before because I, I can kind of relate with where they've been, I feel yeah. like, a little bit. Yeah. It's allowed me to not hurt so many people, I think. Mm. I think it has allowed me to be maybe helpful. I'm not changing lives, but helpful in those moments and not so hurtful, mm. where before I could have probably been hurtful because I would have no clue what they're talking about. Mm. And I would say things just to fix it or solve it or dismiss it. Mm. And so I think going through that has helped me be less hurtful in my Mm. life. You know, it's funny that you're saying that now because, you know, I asked that question, where does your passion come from? It's probably really difficult to genuinely care about a generous cause if you don't possess the quality of empathy. Without empathy, a generous cause is a PR project. Yeah, That's the way I experience anytime you talked about it, like this isn't some grasp for another expression of fame. That's where I, I sense it from you. Like maybe it's just your compassion, your empathy come alive, but I, I experienced it digitally watching interviews yeah. with you. Well, thank you. No, I definitely am not getting famous on generous coffee. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to be able to be the face because of the platform. Sure. But at any moment, if somebody's like, it's really awesome what you're doing, it's just mm-hmm. not true. Yeah. Like, I cannot believe that because I don't ex- like that's not the way this works. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think this could easily become a PR project. But I also think the thing that keeps me from that as well is I work on it day to day. So like it's not just me getting to go out there and do really cool interviews with really great people and go to really great events. No, like my you know laptop full of spreadsheets. Of, right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, random, yeah. Like, I'm in the grind. And so that helps me also. Right. Could you, could you talk some about even just the decision to be for profit? Yeah. I think a lot of times people think that you have to be a nonprofit mm. in order to make a difference. I'm sure you've thoughtfully given a lot of time to that. How, how, do you, how do you think about that? Well, a few ways. You know, there's this unintelligent business thing where I say, hey, I just want to prove that for-profit business can be used for good. So there's like yeah. this like kind of moral stance that I take where it's like, Mm -hmm. I like business. I enjoy business. I enjoy working on other businesses. And I think these can be used for really great things. So let's like go to the extreme here and show how good this can be. Right. There's that side of it. The other side of it is is as a company, we dream of the day that people will want to invest into generous. 
mm-hmm. knowing that the return is not like a return that they would have if they gave to a Fortune 500 company. Yeah, like if they had invested in Facebook earlier or something Yeah, like exactly. That. So they would know what this investment means. They're investing in a generous because they believe that the model that a for-profit business can be used for good. They say, I, you know what? I believe in this. I want to support it. I want to become an investor into this. It's a lot easier when you're a for-profit business compared to a non-profit business. And the final piece is really it's a lot easier for us to sell product and grow our business and scale it as a for-profit business. Like we Mm -hmm. believe this is going to become a behemoth of a company and it's still going to give away 100% of its profits. And we believe that the larger we get and the more we sell and the more freedom we have to sell product and different types of product, the more good we can do. There's some restrictions when it comes to nonprofit work, what you're about and what you're Mm -hmm. supporting and how you're finding the funds to support that. You know, I work in the nonprofit world on the side a little bit, and I just wasn't interested in trying to jump through those hoops for that purpose when I believe the for-profit business can do as great, if not more incredible things. Yeah, I think that is a really powerful paradigm to trailblaze in a lot of ways because I think it's easy to pit profitability against impact or something like that Mm -hmm. or social good. Yeah. But it's interesting. I've I've talked to some really accomplished business people who see sometimes in the nonprofit world for different reasons, there's not an organizational stability that has a consequence on the mission, or maybe there's not the same level of ambition. There's a lot of different factors. And it's funny, this guy was saying he only invests in this sort of model because he believes it has the opportunity for the greatest social good. I believe that. I mean, I, you know, I think in today's world, most markets are fairly saturated. Right. You know, unless you're coming up with new tech, uh, new solutions to make things more efficient, you're working in fairly saturated markets. And coffee is definitely one of those. Sure. And so what's your differentiator? Like, how do you get people to pay attention to what you're doing? And for us, that's story. For us, that's not only telling the story of the coffee producers, but then telling the story of the funds and where they're going and the impact being made on the ground. Mm. And story will be the reason. We have specialty grade coffee. Scientifically, it will be the best coffee in the world. That's just the thing, right? A lot of other people provide that. I'm not Mm. the only person in Denver roasting specialty grade coffee. However, what separates us is the fact that you're participating in a bigger cause, a bigger mission. You're, Mm. You're drinking coffee every morning knowing that that sip of coffee is going to something greater than yourself. And for us, Mm -hmm. we believe we can market that. We can sell Mm -hmm. that and then transparently and authentically show the impact of that. Mm -hmm. That's how we'll grow. And you guys have a shop. Is it is it one shop or do you have multiple shops right now? We have a place in Worcester, Indiana. Okay. We do have our main and original coffee shop in Golden, Colorado. In Golden. I went there on Tuesday and it was a really cool experience. I talked, is it Melissa who runs yeah. it? I talked to her. I asked her just about her experience and I saw the pay it forward wall. That was really cool. Yes. Will, you, will, you, will you talk about what that is? That's a Melissa dream. It's cool. Mm-hmm. Melissa co-owns the coffee shops with me okay. and she runs those coffee shops. During COVID, she realized that people were feeling more isolated than ever. And, you know, as people were allowed and able to get out and move and groove in the world, there's just a lot of pain. And coffee mm-hmm. shops are a place that people stop in most days, even if they're experiencing pain or joy. Mm-hmm. They're kind of a sacred space. And she thought of what if we started to offer the ability for others to be generous through generous coffee mm-hmm. for other people to accept generosity. And so this pay it forward wall, you can come in and buy a cup of coffee. And then you can say, I want to add $10 to this, and I want it to go towards a single mother who is hurting. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And they take like a little coupon, they slap it up on the wall. And then if a single mother comes in, no questions asked, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't say, hey, tell us your story. Are you a single mother? Are you really right. earning? They just go to this wall that exists in the coffee shop. They can pull down a coupon, use it. Yeah. Somebody else has bought it for them. And usually there's a little note on it that somebody leaves and their name. And, you know, we have cards up there. It's really cool to see, like, somebody who's lost a spouse, somebody who's lost a child, somebody going through a divorce, somebody living on the streets. There's a ton of different coupons that exist up there all from people and what they care about and their generosity when they come in and check out. Yeah, I mean, that board, I mean, for context, we'll, we'll find some way to share a photo of it, but that board for context is like, I mean, it's basically six feet tall and it was mm -hmm. it was full, like it was full. Cool. And actually I saw exactly, I mean, I actually asked Melissa this because I saw one that said for a single, it was $10 for a single mom. Mm -hmm. And I even asked her, I said, you know, does somebody use this? Do they feel embarrassed? What is that experience like? And she's like, yep, she'll... You know, somebody will come up and quietly use this and we don't ask any questions, but we can tell that, you know, it really means a lot to her and she feels seen. And I had heard about this because I have a friend who goes to uh, Generous Coffee a lot and she mm -hmm. told me about it and said it was really cool. And I think I was picturing in my mind this little like three cards on a on a bulletin board type of, yeah. <laughs> type of thing. But it's like it's huge. It, it, it really it's is. Uh, it, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's massive. It's the, I mean, it's the prayers of many. Right. And not mm -hmm. everybody on there is. Is probably prayerful people, um, but it's their. The, I mean, to me, that represents the prayers of their heart, and yeah. they're able to to not only say, "This is what I'm thinking about today. Uh, this is who's on my mind today. This is the outsider that I've, I'm thinking about today." But then I'm going to mm -hmm. stick this up there, and then that outsider at some point is going to be able to come in and benefit from that person's thought. I think it's beautiful. I mean, I I, it, I cannot take credit for that, but I think yeah. it's beautiful to see. And when I go in. I like to just stop and look and see what new ones have been added. It is very powerful. A lot of times $5 given in that sort of spontaneous direct fashion is more impactful than, you know, $5,000 given to a, an endowment. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I have a good buddy named Bob Dalton. Bob Dalton was the founder of a blanket company called Sackcloth and Ashes. Sackcloth mm. and Ashes, they're a one-for-one -one model. So when they mm. sell a blanket, they give a blanket to a local shelter in your area. He then spun off to create a website called Love Your City. And mm. his whole thesis with Love Your City that just launched this year is the, that giving will become local and it'll become more personalized. That we're going to start making human connection again through yeah. our giving, through our generosity, through our prayers, through mm. our care. I think it's, I think it's awesome. Yeah. What's next for Generous in the next, you know, three or six months? You know, retail coffee is kind of all was our original a product, like get online, buy our coffee, consume it, keep buying our coffee through subscription models. Mm -hmm. We've really started to see how the market and business is changing away from the, the traditional swag. Mm -hmm. So away from like your fidget spinners and, you know, magnets and sticky notes and all that stuff that was given out that people kind of just take it and throw it away. And we're really investing right now into the corporate gifting uh, mm. space. So customized boxes, customized coffee bags that tell the corporation's story along with our story and where this money is going to be going and why this corporation chose to partner with Generous and this organization. And so mm. I think it's a huge sector for us. I think we're yeah. going to really have a lot of success kind of telling, helping tell the corporation who cares mm. stories. So that's kind of my focus right now is building out that program and making sure that people know about it and hear about it. Uh, we just got back from a trip to Honduras where we brought 30 people from the community down with us to see the work on the ground so that they can come back and be better ambassadors and storytellers for Generous. We'll keep doing that. Those are going to keep start happening more and more now that COVID's gone. 
And, uh, you know, I think overall we're hit, hitting into a season. Not, it's not make or break, um, but I really believe that it's going to be a make season. And we haven't had many of those. Like we have had to kind of grind our way through this, like no pun intended. And I think we're going to start. I think we've learned a lot through that season. And I just believe that this next chapter for Generous is going to be one where we're able to make the impact we've always been dreaming of making mm. and it's going to become really fun yeah well we're looking forward to seeing it thanks so much for being generous with your time hey thank you all for having me yeah all right we hope you enjoyed our interview with ben remember if you want to follow along more closely with what we're building you can always go to our website at www.helloagc.com uh, you can sign up for our email list there uh, as well as we put the majority of our content out on Instagram at, at agc.future. We would love it if you followed along there as well. Thanks so much for joining us as we strive to create a more generous future.